Greetings, dear listeners. Shadi and I went solo this week. I asked him about something I've noticed about his writing recently, his insistence that he's pulling away from current events. A really fascinating discussion ensued about meaning, happiness, and the usefulness of psychotherapy. You may have noticed we moved to Substack recently. We hope you'll head on over and check out all the new content, the essays, debates, and guest writers. Do consider becoming a paying subscriber if you're not one yet while you're over there. You'll get access to, among other things, the full conversation we recorded today. Become part of the crowd. And don't forget to give us a like and a review on your favorite podcast app. With all that out of the way, on to the show. That's where we're at. So, Shadi, time for an intervention. <laughs> oh, okay. I didn't see this coming, so I actually don't know what you're going to say. Oh, don't act. We've talked about it. Um, no, I didn't look, know it required I, an in- intervention. Or I didn't know you were worried about me in that in that way. Well, okay, worried. That's interesting. Um, I'm worried about where your career's headed, young man. <laughs> um. No, look, I, I um, worried is 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 not like the right word necessarily, but I've been I've been I've been wondering, um, mm. you know, well before you wrote uh, that piece for the Atlantic, when was that in March about uh, the misery of paying attention to politics and the rest of that, like leveraging a lot of the um, the literature and research on the subject recently about sort of yeah. especially progressives being miserable. And obviously, we'll put put a note in the in the show notes uh, link to the piece. Everyone should read it. Um, I mean, you've been you've been going at this for a while on wisdom of crowds. Um, most recently this week uh, about um, about a certain kind of uh, joy in being detached. And I'd be the last person to to say that uh, there is no joy in being detached. But I I, I sort of. I'm sort of curious um, about whether you're, you know, more than taking a break. Let's put it that way. That uh, you know, we've talked on the on the pod before. You you know, you've been reading uh, happiness literature for a while and sort of uh, trying to delve into that. I, I wonder, I wonder the extent to which you really are trying to make like a full break from the world. Um, and how much is it just sort of a period of exhaustion with politics and everything else that you just sort of pulled back a little bit and are, are taking a break? Ah, this is not to say like you're not working. Like, I mean, you're writing for The Atlantic. You've uh, you just uh, co-authored this important letter, uh, joint letter about uh, about uh, Tunisia. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I feel like this theme keeps coming back in a lot that you write. A lot for yeah. wisdom of crowds. I feel like a lot of your Monday notes in the last six months or so have, have sort of fallen back on that. Um, and and I mean, you know, wisdom of crowds is where we say what we want to say. But uh, you know, even in your other work, I mean, the Atlantic piece, for example, really jumped out at me that you're you're okay, really so you are, into this. You are worried. This is actually a little bit more serious than I thought. An intervention, like I said. Okay, but can you maybe 
Fair enough. I definitely have a lot to say on this, but can you maybe say more on what the concern is and what, like, to, why is this potentially bad? Not that you're saying that, but I, there is obviously a note of concern and perhaps even confusion about what exactly is going on. Maybe just say a little bit more about that. Um, I don't know. I haven't really thought that one through. I guess it's it's... Um, it's a question about, maybe about, like, you know, um, here's why this is a difficult one for me. Um, I would never put it in terms of responsibility, uh, of being engaged, uh, largely because I find engagement on my own part kind of thrilling and kind of self-justifying but if i was to make an argument to you um call it from sort of general first principles i wonder if uh if there's not some sort of duty to be engaged and huh. whether and whether and whether it's uh not not right but like um Man, maybe selfish to not be engaged. I don't know. I don't know if I'd go that far, but let's throw that out for starters. Okay, but you don't believe in a duty to engage. Um, I guess what I'm saying at is like personally, I don't feel it. Yeah. Um, and I think you know, if it came down to it, and you said, "Well, I just I, I'm focusing on other things like like myself." Uh, and my own happiness and the pursuit of happiness and defining happiness and a lot of this stuff is not important to that. Obviously, on a personal level, I would say, well, oh, that's great, Shadi, you know, uh, go for it. Um, <laughs> but, okay, how about how about like this? I feel like it would be a loss if if we lost uh, you. Oh, uh, if we okay, lost we're going you to, there. To, if we lost you to happiness studies, I think that would be that would oh. be too bad. Okay, well, I appreciate I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, so there's a lot there. Um, I do enjoy engaging with the happiness literature. Um, okay, so it's interesting because I think I'm pulled in two different directions. I mean, you you mentioned my latest Monday note for Wisdom of Crowds, and we'll include a link to that in the show notes. It has a suggestive title, which is. Is it enough to tie your camel and trust in God? And, you know, dear listeners, you've probably heard me say say that saying a number of times now. It's a prophetic hadith. That's why it's referring to camels in the desert, because it's from the 7th century in Arabia. But I think it, it does convey some, which is, it conveys something that's important to me and increasingly important to me, which is this question of, grappling with the futility of politics. So there is a futility to politics, but I wrote that piece in the context of an open letter to the Biden administration on Tunisia that I that I um, co-organized with a colleague. And that open letter actually suggests that I still have some hope. It might not be a lot of hope, but some hope that the U.S. can change and take action on Tunisia. Tunisian, Tunisian democracy is dying. It's, a, it's entrenching itself as an authoritarian regime. 
under um, under this strongman president, Kai Saeed. It's it's very sad. It's depressing. And I'm thinking to myself, I want to do whatever I can with other people who care about this issue to promote awareness around what's happening in Tunisia and to give a series of practical recommendations about what the Biden administration can actually do to kind of stave off this descent into dictatorship. Because I think it'll be like, you know, a moral stain on the Biden administration, but also it's going to consign millions of Tunisians to authoritarian rule for years, if not decades to come. I mean, one of one of my concerns is that once dictatorship entrenches itself, it's quite difficult to undo and you have to wait for quite a long time, perhaps even a generation. Um, and so there's a real human cost that we're talking about here. So that's the kind of background as to why I felt that I had to do whatever I could do and that I did feel I had a kind of um, solemn obligation, even if it's not likely that the Biden administration will do anything in particular um, in response to the letter. Although we are engaging with folks in the administration, we are trying to actually push for positive change to the extent possible. So I feel like the fact that I did that just in the past few weeks, it suggests that I'm not completely withdrawing, right? I mean, I am doing something. I am, I mean, right? So like, what do you, the letter and, you know. No, I think think the letter. The letter was a hopeful sign. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I tried to say that. Um, it's a sign of life. It's a sign of life. Um, but I've just noticed it in your writing, that's all. I just sort of wanted to, to prod you on that, like, and maybe just sort of get an answer whether you're, you're you know, how seriously you're taking this. Are you, are you taking a break to recharge? Or are you, are you looking at this as a, you know, I mean, I, I sort of know the answer, but I like I sort of would like to draw you out on it. Yeah, look, well, I think that the open letter was important to me because I do sort of see it as a final effort. Oh, that sounds really okay. That sounds a little <laughs> bit overwrought. See, 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 this no, is what I'm look, getting at. On on Tunisia, this is probably the last major thing I'm going to do because, and I also don't want to be presumptuous about my own influence. Like, there's only so much I can do as an outsider. I'm not in government. Yeah, but. There's also a question of a window of opportunity. I think give it two or three months, it's probably going to be too late on Tunisia. So I feel like those of us who care about the issue, we got to do everything we can now. We can't wait until like the summer's over or, you know, people want to have fun and go to Italy or whatever, and then come back in September and re-engage on Tunisia. It might be too late then, although I am going to Italy in August, but putting that aside, um, but so I just don't know what what more I can actually do after this open letter. I mean, folks in the administration who work on this know my position. I feel like I've done what I can to convey my position to them. And I have some meetings in the coming weeks where I'll try to push it a little bit more. But I want to sort of I want to just know that I can live with myself afterwards, like if Tunisia goes into a very dark place that I can sort of be like, well, I did what I could do. Mm-hmm. And and then I can maybe be, it, this isn't about me. It's not about like living, it, it's not about sleeping at night um, or or whatever. I just need to know that I did something. Right. And right, so but- that, 
Uh, but but here's a, here's a question. Um, there's a there's a there's a kind of finality to how you're talking about this, um, in the sense that like you know, fights are to be won, rather than that existence on a very broad level. Uh, but let's include politics in it, which I know something you agree with is a, is a constant struggle is a constant give and take a constant pushing a boulder up a hill um whereas i take your point that you know it may be too late for tunisia um but is that uh there's just like a there's a sense of 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 fatalism to uh to how you're describing it in the sense that um and not just Tunisia, but like all of it, like, and your exhaustion with politics is, is sort of similar in that sense, which is just like the futility of politics you, you mentioned at the beginning as well. I mean, sure, it's always going to be futile. You're not going to, you're not going to see the, the, the promised land. Um, and I guess that's at the heart of your, your, the observations about progressives in, in, in your essays that, you know, uh, it's the promise of progress and progress denied that is so depressing. But isn't that like what's wrong? about you know that kind of teleological progressivism exactly um, which is why i'm i'm sort of conceding the possibility of progress like it may or may not happen and i can't hitch my future happiness or contentment or satisfaction to something i don't have much control over i mean this is the problem with progressives as i discuss in the atlantic piece is when you make politics the overarching impetus of your life and it, you make it into a calling and you see it as this long struggle that you're a part of with other progressives and progress doesn't happen. It just, it's a recipe for disappointment. And the problem mm. with progress is that there's no fixed way to assess it. The nature of progress is that it always wants more for itself. It always has to be in perpetual motion. So, disappointment is baked into progressive thought. Yeah. You, you almost are supposed to be disappointed because if you were content, then you would lose the urge to pursue progress, you know? So if sure. that makes sense. But totally. um, so I just don't, I don't, you know, I don't want to live like that. Um, but how, how, um, how, do you, how do you, how do you, how do you think political engagement should work, I guess is my question. Um, you know, the, the, the premise behind, um, well, I'd argue, maybe you disagree with this. I would argue the, the premise of even, uh, your conception of minimal democracy is one where, uh, engagement by individuals is of paramount importance. Um, now maybe you'd say that, that, the engagement has to be driven by the hope of some kind of ultimate outcome of the better. Yet, you know, you look back at history, um, you know, obviously all fights are about something and the stakes are about that one thing. Um, and yet what's important about, about, well, what's, what's critical for a democracy to succeed is continual engagement by citizens. That, in some ways, one might argue that uh, a citizenry—never mind you—but a citizenry that that were to take 
your stance uh, on politics um, would disengage. And that's in many ways the end of democracy, no? Well, look, I mean, my Monday note with the camel thing suggests the opposite, right? Because I'm yeah, not saying sure. just trust in God. I'm saying you got to go and tie your camel. Yeah. That we do have an obligation to do what we can um, and to err on the side of doing more rather than doing less. In other right. words, we we can we can very well acknowledge the tragedy of our existence and say that after we tie the camel to the tree, someone else is going to come and cut the cord and steal the camel. Like we don't have a lot of control over that. But I guess part of what I'm saying is that even if you think someone is going to take your camel or steal it or kill it or whatever, that doesn't negate the responsibility of tying it. We have to right. do our part. And part of that, part part of the reasoning behind that is tied to a kind of religious belief that the only way to properly trust in God is to show him that we've done what we can do. Right. And then in that sense, because it's we can't trust in God without doing that first step, because at some level he'll he'll say or think, um, well, um, you didn't even try. Like intention matters. And there's also another prophetic hadith that actions are judged by their intention. Islam is not a consequentialist religion. It's not an outcomes based religion. It's an intention based religion. Mm. So God has to see our intention. And then the rest is up to him. Now, let me let me get a little bit more specific as to like where I'm actually at in this in terms of my own life. You know, not to be morbid about it, but um, I'd probably mentioned this on a podcast before. I've certainly written about it on Wisdom of Crowds, which is we only on average have about 4,000 weeks to live. Mm -hmm. And there's a really good book about this by Oliver Berkman called Time Management for Mortals, 4,000 mm -hmm. Weeks to Live or something to that effect. We'll put in the show notes. I'd highly recommend it. Now, I think this is important because we have to come to terms with our finitude and that we can't do everything that we want to do and we can't have it all. We, If we only have a limited time on this earth, we have to think very carefully about how we want to use it. And the more time we spend doing one thing, the less time we'll have doing another. There is usually a trade-off. Yeah, you were. So, you were, were you quoting uh, Neil Ferguson on this about his family? Was that Neil Ferguson on Twitter? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, right. Okay, I was just reading a, a, a Neil Ferguson interview where he does lament the fact that in the two thousands, when he was a rising star at Harvard, and he was writing these books that were quite successful. And, you know, talking about them a lot and touring and all that, that he just regrets that he didn't have as much time to spend with his kids when they were young. And he and yeah. he says something to the effect that you can never get that time back. And that was, you know, I think a lot of people think that and say that it's not like a new insight, but it is very difficult for people to, I think, apply that insight in their own lives. Um and, you know, there's a lot of stories of happiness experts who talk about the importance of family and community, but also ag admit that they've been away from home for half of the year. I think there's one happiness expert who I saw an interview of, I think it was Arthur Brooks, where um, he's away for like 160 days talking about happiness to mm -hmm. other people who are presumably unhappy. Right. 
And he's telling them to focus on their family, but also, in some sense, lamenting the fact that he can't be with his family as much as he would like, in part because he's trying to help other people become happy. So yeah. we see, basically, and then, you know, there's also the saying that authors write the books that they need to read. So if you're writing a book about happiness, presumably you're not just writing it for other people. You're also you're writing a miserable it for son yourself. Of a bitch, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you know, if I write a book on the problem of democracy, I'm uh, I am trying to make a case to people, and I care about this issue a lot. But I also struggle with these issues, and I have to persuade myself of my own opinion at some level, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. anyway, where am I going with all this? This is just to say that um, something's got to give. So if I've spent if if I spend so much of my time engaged on political issues on Twitter, thinking about the new debate that people are worked up about, watching Trump do a town hall on CNN, because that's what politically engaged people do. They watch these town halls and they try to make sense of them. Like all these things take up time. And I just don't know if I want to spend my time that way. Um, yeah. Which is not to say that I'm going to be disengaged. I mean, we we uh, relaunched Wisdom of Crowds because we believe in this yeah. and we want to share it with more people um, in the U.S. and also across the globe. And we're very serious about that. And it, so it's a different kind of engagement. I mean, what I want to do, like the legacy that I would want to leave, God willing, would be I want to I want to help Americans and others change the way they debate and disagree and the way they understand their first principles um, to kind of engage at that deeper level of like, why do we believe what we believe? I mean, that is what animates us here at Wisdom of Crowds. That seems more important to me than persuading readers or listeners about a particular policy issue. And that just, it's also a different way. It's a different mechanism for change. To change policy, you have to be engaged with the policy apparatus, right? You actually have to engage with folks in government, with NGOs. You got to do some form of advocacy. It's just a different set of skills. I think that if you want to change the way people disagree and debate, you don't necessarily have to do that through the policy apparatus. You can do it by just talking to people and going di direct to the source. And if I yeah. can change the way hundreds of people, if I can help change, I don't want to, again, don't want to be too presumptuous here, but if we, if us, if I can help change the way hundreds, let's just start small, hundreds. Sure, sure. Like we obviously aspire to more than that because, you know, our audience is larger, but even if it was just hundreds, that would be pretty amazing to change people's lives at that level. And they, they can then go and apply that to their own families, friendships, and communities. That's amazing. Sure. I know sure. that's also, I, but I also know that people hear that and progressives hear that and they say, and they think this is a major concession. It's an unacceptable concession to reality. Shaddy is giving up hope in large scale political change. That's what they yeah. might say, but that's not, I mean, I want them to push for that, but that doesn't mean that I have to operate on the same register as them. You know what I mean? I can do my own thing and that has its own importance and we're doing complementary things. Yeah, sure, sure. That makes sense. Yeah, I guess I guess, you know, just from my perspective, um, 
I we we've gotten into this actually, or at least sort of brushed up against this in in previous episodes where where you challenge me and say something like, you know, if you're not trying to change the world, what are you doing? Um, and my answer was always like, yeah, you know. And I guess that's why I guess I, I'm 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 more challenged to understand the disappointment. I guess is what it comes down to, uh, because for me, engagement. I mean, I've said this before. It's it's always been more, uh, how do I put it, sociological than political. Like, I mean, I, I'm just delighted um, to see what we human beings get up to in all of its like depravity, quite frankly, and then just sort of writing about it and observing it. That to me is is um, fascinating like yeah but it's fascinating but to what end i guess i'd i'd maybe just i always push you on this but like why is that ultimately enough like why is that important is it just that you enjoy it yeah i think that's right i mean i I, it maybe is that's that's uh maybe enough you know um no again like enjoyment comes in in different valences i guess um it's uh you know, at my new gig at the post, it's it's gratifying to uh, sometimes imagine what the argument is and find someone to like who's on the same page to try and express it, um, and give them the opportunity to do it and help them express it as you know clearly as possible. Um, mm. I suppose there's there's something that that still doesn't resonate with me, and it's actually sort of a, a blind spot for me at the post, which is, you know, I mean, I've sort of always worked uh, behind the scenes at these sorts of places. And I always find it really difficult to under to really imagine what kind of impact um, any one thing has. And as a result, like my my sort of day to day on this stuff ends up uh, um, being about finding what's interesting and assuming that other people will, if I've done my job right, uh, to either write my own argument or get someone else's argument as clearly as possible out there, that will be interesting to someone else. And that, that, that is gratifying. I mean, just gratifying, personally gratifying. Um, it's been really interesting at the posts for me to every so often <laughs> grapple with the fact that, like how big the goddamn audience is of that place. So every so often I actually get sort of paralyzed about that. I was like, wait a second, you know, yeah. like I'm, I'm doing this stuff about like, Oh, here's a, here's a, uh, here's something interesting. And then I just have to remind myself that, you know, it's, it's not just me gratifying myself, but their, their implications for, for arguments and stuff like that. But I, I try and fight that, quite frankly, because because I, I I think that maybe there's something about when you find yourself at a at a with, at a place with a lot of reach um, that you start maybe over politicizing everything you do in a sort of way, and you sort of get caught up in the um, in the give and take of politics, and you end up seeing yourself as a political actor, which I've never really felt comfortable with the idea that the media should be that. And to be fair, I, I, I don't I don't like what, what Trump did to America's media because it transformed most of it, most of the sort of center and center-left media into activists. Um, and that's never 
been my conception of what the media should be doing, you know? Now, obviously, that's what I was saying earlier. There's, there's obviously a tension there that I'm jolted every so often that there's a lot more responsibility when you're at a place that has a huge reach to, uh, to not just be, um, I don't know, uh, you need to be thinking about the consequences of, our, of arguments uh, much more so than you do at a, at a, at a smaller place. Nevertheless, though, like I think it's really important to just be going for the good argument, and 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 I guess I guess what I'm getting at is it's like I think the 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 role of of media should be getting individuals to engage, and not engage necessarily as activists, but to be aware and have that shape their reality somehow. I guess that's how the best way I could. I'd put it, and that's as far as I'd go into purpose of, of something like this. Um, yeah, that's- I don't know if that makes sense, but I mean, I guess it's it's for that reason that that I'm 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 less troubled about uh, you know setbacks. I guess is the question, like and politics. This is not to say that I'm I'm you know watching what looks to me like Trump's inevitable rise <laughs> with yeah. complete equanimity, um, far from it. Um, but, but I, I, I guess I don't take that personally, uh, in a sense. And I don't, yeah. I don't feel the weight of that. Um, obviously these are weighty moments and, 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 you know, obviously well, as individuals, we have a responsibility towards, but still, I, I'm I'm able to not let that weigh me down somehow, and I guess that's, that's what it is. Hmm. Is that like outcome? I don't know. I feel like I engage in politics without having it um, weigh on me. This outcome yeah, well, maybe that's sort of part thing. of it. I wanna I wanna be weightless. Yeah, I want I um I want to you know if you will feel the unbearable lightness of being. It's been too long since I've read that. Have you read it recently? <laughs> no. It's the kind of thing that you read in your 20s and you feel like it's life-changing. I wonder what it would be like now. I will I say- I is a fun writer. I think it's- Oh, he's very fun, good. very playful. Yeah. I would actually, for those of you, I don't know if there's people who don't read that book at some point. Um, maybe the younger generation is less familiar with it, the youth. But we'll include a link to that in the show notes as well. Like, seriously, if you want- a literary experience, read The Unbearable Lightness of Being. But this brings me to, um, I just want to say something a little bit more personal as I'm just kind of listening to you, Demir, and thinking about, you know, my own my own commitments here. Um, I think part of it really comes down to, okay, let me share something that I think readers and listeners will find compelling, I hope. It's from a previous podcast host, the philosopher Oliver Traldi. Um, and these tweets are now protected, but they used to be open. So I think that I can share them. And um, it's really a beautiful couple sentiments. But I'll share the first tweet in the thread, which will get me to something hopefully more important and perhaps even vaguely profound. He says this. This is what he says, quote, a feeling I get in certain kinds of situations is that I'm not quite up to the task of living my own life, given that it's a whole life and that there's only one. 
I get overwhelmed by emotions and paralyzed by choices, and I often falter in moments that turn out to be important. Okay, tweet number two. I can't get used to the fragility of everything and the necessity of continuing to make decisions in each and every moment, and I don't feel I have immediate access to my own desires. Just figuring out what I myself want can take so much time that I can't get it anymore. Okay, so I, I um, the, the first the first tweet there is is the more important one for me because it's a sense of again finitude that we only have one life to live, and if we don't enjoy it, it then what's really the point? Again, like people might say that seeding some kind of responsibility, but. What is so bad about finding our own way and doing our own thing and looking inward? And ultimately, it's a personal choice. But I guess at some basic level, like I want to live the life that I want to live. Um, sure. And I think most people come to that conclusion when they have a family and, you know, move to the suburbs and whatever else it might be, and they become more parochial um, and even in some ways private in their preoccupations, is that really so bad? Like, why do we always have to be fighting for a better world? We can fight for a better world part of the time, but we can also do other things. So, I mean, I will, and, and I was also thinking about like earlier today, um, just mentally preparing for this podcast which is like, what are the issues that animate me now? And you know what I actually came up with? And this might betray some non-progressive leanings on my part. But honestly, the things that animate me, and this is unfortunate because I don't want these things to animate me, are basically, okay, fear of wokeness in institutions, including in schools, if I'm thinking ahead to you know, having kids and all that, that animates me and makes me feel angry. Um, the um, crime and hope, uh, I was going to say crime and hopelessness. No, crime, well, I mean, that too. But crime and homelessness and just a general sense of decay in urban centers, that animates me because I live in one of those cities. So it has like approximate effect on me. Um and you know some of that's tied to like mental health and the fact that we just we just let people go around and like apparently our government can't even like anyway like how is it that we have homeless encampments in parks in major urban thoroughfares in DC like literally we let these encampments build and we just we give up as a society like that animates me because again i see it on a regular basis Another thing that's animating me more. Um, I'm. Um, why are there so many smoke shops in D.C.? These marijuana dispensaries, like I feel like marijuana legalization. All of us were in favor of it. All of us thought this was the smart, sensible thing to do. Like, and now we're seeing that there's actually a real social cost to things that we thought were obvious. Like it does change the character of a neighborhood when you have these dumb dispensaries that attract shady people who are um, 
intoxicated and not like whatever. I guess people aren't aggressive when they smoke a lot of pot, but it does have. Um, I don't want to get into this too much, but I have been reading some of Charles Fain uh, Lehman's work on this. He writes a lot about the case against marijuana, and he's changed too. He used to be a libertarian on this stuff. But now he's like, if you look at the data, if you look at the actual effects in communities and, um, you know, there are people who smoke a lot of pot and are just like not up to the task of living. They're just like, maybe they're not harmful, but at another basic level, they're withdrawing in a way that isn't healthy for community. Um, I'll, I'll we'll include a couple links to his recent pieces on that. I'd highly recommend his work on this, and we should probably have him on. But okay, so though I just cited a few things that animate me. Now, um, what was that definition of conservatism that progressives sometimes use? A series of irritable mental gestures or something like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah like there's really, a... Yeah. Yeah. So there's something about the conservative mindset that is reacting to changes that one doesn't like. And that's what I've just done. I see crime. I'm reacting to crime. I'm reacting to these dumb smoke shops and this stupid smell of marijuana that I have to like put up with when I'm walking around the neighborhood. I'm exaggerating slightly for effect just to convey this idea is that we do get to a point, I think as we get older, on average, where certain things start to annoy us and that starts to animate our politics. We're no longer thinking about some utopian outcome. We're thinking about how to forestall societal decay. And we see it around ourselves. And the fact that the police can't be bothered to like do basic things in, say, San Francisco, where Lee Fang on his substack, Lee Fang is on the left. Um, and he's calling the alarm on this. And basically, there's a story of a guy whose house got broken into eight times in San Francisco. And the police just basically told him, listen, man, hire private security. Like, we, we can't, like, sorry. Like, but this is a libertarian actually... dream. This is the libertarian <laughs> dream, right? Yeah. This is what Robert Nozick said that the state should operate. Like, everyone up, yeah. like, hires <laughs> private security and the monopoly on private security will end up being the state. Yeah. Anyway, go on. Yeah. But it's sort of like, <laughs> And progressives also like there is this thing that if you're a progressive, you shouldn't complain about crime all that much because the reason people commit crimes is because of the failure of the government to provide uh, basic social services and to satisfy the needs of ordinary citizens. So we see this, we see shoplifting, we see crime, we see break-ins, and then the progressive response is, oh, let's let's have a more generous welfare state. It's like this absurdity, like we're seriously in such a weird state right now where people make arguments that are self-evidently absurd and we all just look away. And then anyway, like this is, so honestly, like this is what I get worked up about. I don't want to get worked up about these things because I don't want to, I don't want to move in that direction. I don't want my politics to be defined by reaction to societal decay, or maybe that is a fine thing. But it's just to say that those are much more, they're small scale, but they actually speak to something fundamental in our society. And they also have 
a personal effect on us in a way that a lot of the other issues don't. These are things that affect ordinary people who live in major cities, but we're looking away and we're afraid to say something about it because we don't want to be seen as racist, as if talking about crime is a, is racist, when actually it's people of color who are most affected by crime in urban centers. So it's kind of absurd on that. But, you know, that's sort of like the fact that, like, I'm this, if those trends continue, and if also, like, let's say, just to give one more thing to my litany, you know, if we also have like diversity, equity, and inclusion departments colonizing government bureaucracy and our military and our defense, um, our ability to defend ourselves um, at the highest level of government. Like, I don't want DEI to take over the American military because then we're not going to be able to fight as effectively because that's the military shouldn't be about like institutionalizing wokeness. It should be about fighting and yeah. fighting well and defeating our enemies, including China. Okay. Um, so these things have, I think, profound, poten potentially profound consequences. Um, and I guess like. Uh, yeah, I don't know where I'm going with all this, but like the fact that that's what is animating me, I think it's telling, but it's also concerning for me because I don't want to be defined by those issues. So a couple of points. Um, <laughs> clearly, you've become a conservative, one. Uh, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, I, I, I guess without going into any of those issues in particular, um, I guess let me just give you my sort of stance on it, which again sort of uh, explains my lack of direct political engagement. Um, one thing, you know, as you're describing D.C., uh, I just remember I was, you know, I moved here in 98 for about two years, and then I moved back to Baltimore. I came back in 2004. Um, so I, I predate you a little bit. But I remember even when I was in Baltimore, an undergraduate, we come to D.C. Um, and my God, <laughs> like what D.C. was back then. Uh, everything you describe right now, I mean, you know, uh, I, it doesn't even get close to what, what okay, D.C. Well, was like back just, then. Just to re just recall, though, I first lived in D.C. in the early 2000s. So, yes, it's a lot better than it was even then. Yeah. Here, I mean, you're talking about the 90s, which was even a different level. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah. I mean, oh, so like so I guess all I'm getting at is, you know, from my perspective on a lot of this, um, I, I and you know, our our friend Jen Mortazashvili, you know, criticized me a lot before for not taking wokeness seriously enough. Um, but I guess I have this kind of uh, resigned pose to it that you know, these kinds of social energies for equity and equality like just bubble up in American society and they, they, they come in waves. Um, they do good. They do bad. They peter out almost always, and they somehow get subsumed in politics. Um, so I guess that, that, that sort of thing keeps me from being too actively engaged in any of these fights. But my, my question to you then, um, well, let me just say one, one other thing. I mean, I, I, we've talked about this before in the podcast also is that, you know, I, 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 I also do have a pretty strong, uh, 
I guess, philosophical bias uh, about or towards entropy. That is to say that, like, I think things sort of, you know, entropy is not the right model. I was reading Thomas Pynchon earlier this week. and What is entropy mean? 49. Uh, entropy is just okay. like, you know, sort of a, a, a decline of, you know, I mean, in, in physics, it's... it's Gradual it's, decline uh, into disorder is what it yeah, is yeah, coming yeah. up. Yeah, that's right. Uh, in Thomas Pynchon's Crying of Lot 49, like entropy plays a big role. Um, and I mean, it's Thomas Pynchon, like, like plays with that a lot. Um, I think it's short stories as well, which I haven't read in a while. Uh, but, but it's, um, I guess, I guess that, that, that sense or the very real possibility that, that, uh, you know, in all ups and downs, there's like a strong tension downwards. Uh, I, I guess I sort of take as given, um, and, uh, it's always a delight to see that America doesn't succumb to that, like seems to somehow regenerate itself. Um, doesn't seem to, I mean, and it's, it's turbulent and crazy. So I guess for all those reasons, I, I, I don't really get too worked up about any of this stuff, but my, my challenge to you then is, is like, sounds like apart from your shift to arch conservatism, <laughs> Um, it's also a shift towards, uh, local politics rather than, uh, international stuff, uh, away from kind of the big ideas that arguably, you know, the scale at which ideas transform the world, um, I guess there's always an appeal that you, you'll be the next Karl Marx and your scribblings will actually really transform history, but you know, generally they don't work that way. And so, you know, but on local politics, a lot of these issues that you're bringing up are, are, are quite amenable to local policies and engagement on the local level. I mean, uh, you know, take drugs, take crime. Uh, and we absolutely should have Charles Lehman on, but, but I don't, you, you know, you, you haven't pointed out, I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty, it's pretty hardcore in the death penalty. I don't know if you're aware of that. Like, before it? Charles on the de on the oh yeah, <laughs> like quite uncompromising, and he's written a lot about that. Um, wow. So, plenty to talk uh, to Charles if uh, if if uh, we decide we'd like to have him on. He's, he's a really interesting and smart guy. Um, but the uh, the the um, the question to you is 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 it seems to me like you're just orienting towards local politics and maybe it's even a balm to you because, or a potential source of, of feeling better because unlike, you know, writing open letters to change the policies of an administration that has to, as you pointed out in your book, or at least claims it has to balance all sorts of uh, interests as it's doing stuff plus it's a huge bureaucracy and how the sausage gets made is very difficult and as you even alluded to here you got to talk to civil society groups and other pressure groups to actually affect change uh local politics is very different and especially in a small city like dc right, we're we're a very small town uh if you get engaged in local politics you really can make a huge difference in all of these issues that seem to be occupying you um like i said yeah, those, well they don't keep me up at night but like you know, if they keep you up at night, like there's a path well, they for don't, you. The thing is, they don't keep me up at night either. But there's also like, there's 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 me, the writer, and the researcher, and I'm not interested in writing all that much about crime and DEI departments because other people can do it better. And there's also a smallness to it that I find a little bit off-putting. 
like I there's Shaddy as an individual citizen, and I was just mm-hmm. describing earlier that these things animate me. But that's different than saying that I want these things to be at the core of my writing and my thinking, mm. which mm-hmm. I don't want them to be. Um, so I think that I can get involved in local politics as Shaddy citizen, but that's different than Shaddy author podcast host, right? Mm. So I want to, like, those are not going to be collapsed into each other, God willing, you know? Mm -hmm. But I'll also say that there's another part of me, when I think about the kind of society that I want to be part of, that I would want to build, I I think about a society that values empathy and compassion, and that's where the progressive leanings would return. So once we stave off, like, the worst elements of, like, promiscuous shoplifting, there has to be a vision beyond that. And there has to be a way to address uh, long-term housing issues, um, to address the roots of homelessness, to get serious about a massive, like something like a Marshall Plan for mental illness. We have too many people walking around who are schizophrenic and just like out of their minds, and the government should be there to provide basic support. So when I think about the medium to long-term, that does lend itself to a more progressive approach. Um, you know, uh, and maybe those two things are intention at some level. And like, we look, every, every individual contains multitudes, like anyone who says otherwise is deluding themselves. So, and the fact that Republicans are crazy on guns um, and we're, we're seeing that really come to the fore in recent weeks with just the spate of, mass shootings and the fact that conservatives can't be bothered to like muster a proper response like republicans are just like that is not a society i want to live in so they might be they might be better on fighting wokeness they might be better in realizing that people have to be arrested for certain crimes that you have to have a good relationship with your local police department because if the district da doesn't like the police and the police don't don't like him, you're going to have a, a serious problem, which affects people on a, on a daily basis. You know, so fine, they're better on those things. But when I think about like the kind of society that I want to live in, um, I don't think about Republicans or conservatives because they're just full on reactionary. They're not providing a vision for what they want society to be. So at some level, I guess I'm saying we need Democrats and we need Republicans because they speak to both sides of me. And they speak to both sides of the American idea. We shouldn't want to have permanent rule by the Democratic Party. I don't want, like, if I have to really be honest, I don't want the Democratic Party to win every single election on the presidential level. Because then that wouldn't be a democracy. Republicans have to win. Local. I mean, again, yeah, I don't want that either because that happens. We have a one party, we have one party states and one party cities. No, it would be better in DC if we actually had a viable opposition party. Yeah, you could run as a Republican in DC for you just (laughs) laid out your entire, your entire uh, as a crime, a crime fighting Muslim. Yeah, yeah, I think that's powerful. (laughs) There's probably a big audience for that. That's it for part one, dear listeners. There's a lot more where that came from. If you're not yet a paying subscriber, please head on over to wisdomofcrowds.live and become one. Help support our work. Hope to see you in the bonus.